Thanks once again for queuing up Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, it is Primary Source Monday, which means that the podcast today consists of me reading something important that was written or spoken by someone who was directly involved in the history of the Beaver State. Right now, we're in the middle of going through the oral histories collected and written up by the writers of the Works Progress Administration's Oregon Folklore Project during the Great Depression. These interviews follow a loose template. The writers, usually Sarah B. Wren, Walker Winslow, Claire Churchill, or Andrew Sherbert, but there were a few others as well, have to answer a series of questions about the interviewee on the cover pages, along with the name and address of the person. I'll be reading those pages before we start as a sort of header on the oral history. The WPA, as you probably know, was a New Deal agency created by the government of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s to combat the Great Depression. The idea was that rather than lazily pumping money into the economy by bailing out failing banks and propping up failing businesses like certain other administrations have done throughout the years since, we'd get something for it by putting the money in the hands of people who would spend every penny of it patronizing businesses and pumping up the economy. And whether or not that worked is for the political podcasters to wrangle about, but I don't mind telling you that I approve of the philosophy, not least of all because it sure yielded some good Oregon history stuff, stories that would have disappeared entirely if they hadn't. This is one of those stories. So let's get to it. Name of Worker, Walker Winslow. November 29th, 1938. Name and address of informant will be Hank Sims, Old Fellows Home. Southeast 32nd and Holgate Street, Portland, Oregon. Description of room, house, and surroundings. The Odd Fellows Home for Old People occupies large grounds and consists of two well-kept brick buildings of four or five stories each. I was shown around the institution by the superintendent, and the entire establishment is a clean, modern, and nicely furnished place. Each of the residents has a private room, and it was in Hank Sims' room that I conducted the interview. The furnishings of this room are two chairs, a bed, and a chest of drawers. There were no pictures on the walls and but few of Mr. Sims' belongings on the dresser. Everything was very orderly, and it was evident that Hank Sims doesn't belong to that school of elders who go in for exotic interior decoration. In spite of the comparative bareness of the room, one felt at home. Mr. Hank Sims is an old type of Westerner and resents having his family affairs pried into. He does, however, in the course of ordinary conversation, reveal many of the answers necessary to the above questions. His father, Henry Hutton Sims, was born in Illinois in 1823 and came west in the gold rush of 49. Later he took up a donation land claim two miles north of the town of Willamina, and it was there that Hank Sims was born in the year 1852. About the rest of his family and his early years on the homestead, Mr. Sims was uncommunicative and wanted to get on to talk of mining, in which I had told him I was interested. Question four, places lived in with dates, is answered by Mr. Sims' claim that he has lived in practically every mining town from Alaska to Mexico. Five, education with dates, is as yet unanswered, but Sims is a remarkably literate man. 
6. Occupations and accomplishments with dates. Mr. Sims is a miner and has worked in every type of metal but tungsten, and at every position in the mines from laborer to superintendent. Special skills and interests. Mr. Sims' special skills and interests are those connected with mining, geology, etc. Community and religious activities. Mr. Sims is an atheist, and from his present residence, it can be assumed that he is an odd fellow. At 86, Hank Sims has the appearance of a man 20 years younger, and his only infirmity seems to be a little weakness in the legs. He is a tall and somewhat handsome man, clean-shaven, with clear eyes and a steady countenance that at times wears an ironic sort of smile. When he loads his pipe, you notice with surprise that his hands are steady, and from the clearness of his voice and the delivery of his speech, you have a hard time bringing yourself to believe in his age. He has all of his own teeth, and though they are worn, they seem strong and grip his pipe with some determination. His weight is about 190, and he is still a powerful man, and one whose body has not been broken by labor, but built by it. The hearing is good, and except for some minor lapses, there seem to be no flaws in his memory. One of the significant things about the man is his honesty about his present position, and he says he cannot see why a person who was unsuccessful enough to end up in a home for the aged should be of interest to anybody, or why anything he could say should seem important. It would be the impression of this interviewer that Mr. Sims is an extremely reliable source of information. He is remarkably free from any biases that might color the picture of the past. Since he harbors no bitterness, his remarks on others can be given some validity, when a person still living might be hurt by anything he has to say, he refuses to give the proper name. Hank Sims is the finest type of old Western man. The Last Diggings by Walker Winslow It has long been proverbial in Oregon, as elsewhere in the West, that a majority of gold prospectors and miners end up without the gold they spend their lives seeking. Of the few who are materially rewarded, only a small percentage keep their gain. As a consequence, most miners spend their last years in limited circumstances. They are not wholly defeated, however. Orally, they live the good years over and over again, narrating their life stories in a style that is robust, racy, and picturesque. The following is a living example. Part 1 When I talk, I am liable to do some tall running off at the mouth. I am a long-distance talker, and for all I know, he may take you for a long ride in the wrong direction. I am a miner, and for forty, fifty years I have been tunneling a shaft straight into this poorhouse. You can't call that very good mining. Most miners is fools, and I'll bet you that for every dollar lifted off the bedrock in this country, too, was put back into it. Miners is liars, too. Honest liars. If you question a miner's word about his claim, you might as well question his daughter's virtue. That's the way they stand by their lives. I have lied some tall ones in my day and struck millions in this old head that no man will ever see or take to the mint. That's how I got where I am, by being a lying fool. I don't take it you are religious, so I'll go further and say that miners is damned fools and that I've been one of the worst. I'll tell you about some of my special kinds of foolishness. Part 2 I am a hard rock man, and I learned my business at Kermit, California, up in the Feather River country. That was big diggings, and some of the best of the old hands was there. I learned the business from the ground down. You don't learn from the ground up in my business. I could timber and cut my own steel before I was twenty-five. We didn't have none of them hardware store drills in them days. The boss man handed you a bar of steel and said, Cut her up. You couldn't come no kicks about your drill unless you wanted to kick yourself. 
To be a timber man, you had to be a first-rate rough carpenter, and like as not, you had to fell your own timber right on the ground. A man had to know his business, and a foreman could tell a greenhorn like reading beef from a poor ox, and you didn't ask the foreman how to do anything. He'd just say, go ahead, and if it don't suit me, I'll let you know. No one ever got fired in them days. All you had to do was criticize a man, and he quit. There's none of this sucking around like you have now, and a man didn't hang on to his job like a priest onto a parish. Every once in a while, we just drug out our pay on principle and went down the road to a new job. They'd call us hobos now, I guess. But back in the day, we were known as Overland Johns, and by God, I knew every creek and cow between here and Mexico, and right back up to Alaska. You see what it has got me. But in them days, if you were a mining man, there wasn't any other way around. People didn't like the home guard, and if you stayed in one place very long, that is just what you got to be. Man kept moving, he had to keep on his toes, and that made good mechanics out of us old-timers. People hired the drifters. Part 3. I'll give you an example of how we got our jobs, and this wasn't long ago either. I drifted into Cornucopia one night on the late stage, just out shaking the smell of Portland off myself, and I dropped into a small blind pig to warm myself up a little. I'm not much of a drinking man, but the bartender there could see that I was an old overlander, and he was an old-timer himself. He grinned at the sight of me. We didn't have much to say, but when I got up to leave for the hotel, he calls me and says, "'Looking for a place, old-timer?' I told him that he pretty near had the idea. "'Well,' he says, "'you go see so-and-so in the morning. He wants a man.' Then he asked my name, and so I told him and went to bed." The next morning, I went around to see the guy he told me about, and he asked me a hell of a lot more questions than he had any business asking about. Where I'd been, who I'd worked for, I told him as much as I thought he ought to know. I could see that the job was in high grade, and he wanted to know just who he was hiring. He was just about to paint my check for me and tell me it was a no-go, when here comes the bartender and says, Say, so-and-so, ain't you hiring this man? This is Hank Sims. He don't amount to nothing and never will, but he is a hard rock man from way back, and so tight in his mining it would take a ten-pound sledge to drive a drill in him, and so honest it'd take a pinch bar to pull it out. You're hired, says so-and-so to me. Well, I've handled some of the steepest high grade you ever did see for that man. I've seen the time when we pulled down a stand of it that you could run 600 ounces of silver to the ton, maybe 300 gold, and I don't think that man ever watched me. He trusted me, and that high grade was the kind you carry in canvas so none of it will leak out. That bartender's word was better with him than a deacon's. High grade ore is the kind that is rich enough to steal the way it is, and the men who steal it are the known as high graders. There are other high graders, too, such as the companies that buy property and skim off the cream and then sell out to some sucker for a lot more than there is left. But the kind I'm talking about here is the kind that steals ore and peddles it. A man could be honest as hell until he saw a clump of high grade, and then all his principles could leave him. I had a Swede working with me that just couldn't leave high grade alone. He was an honest man, up to a point, but that there ore was just too much of a strain on it for him to stand up under. The shaft run back into the mountains, and this high grade clumped out every so often. The way you do with that stuff is to leave it hanging so the boss can watch it. He can then measure a bunch of it that way, and there's no running off with it. One day we run around a hanging of extra-rich stuff and finished cleaning up around it just at quitting time. I went out of the shaft and left the Swede standing there looking at the high grade, and pretty soon I heard a crash. 
He couldn't stand it any longer and had knocked it down. We went on down to the bunkhouse together, and an hour later along comes the foreman. He says, Ole, I'm going to have to lay you off. You're a good miner, but I got to let somebody go, and it might as well be you. I'm going down the hill tonight, and I want you for company. You couldn't leave that Swede in that loose high grade in the same county, and the super knew it. He didn't blame the Swede as he walked him to town with him to keep him honest. Now, I've been too damn honest. People used to call me Honest Hank Sims. They ought to have said, There goes Honest Hank Sims on his way to the poorhouse. Part 5 You would think that mining your life away was enough of a gamble, but no. The miner wouldn't have it that way. He had to buck the tiger and sweat out whole cards right along with his other prospecting. Sometimes they'd hit, but not very often. I saw one poor galoot of a cousin Jack, that's a Cornishman, come into one place with not enough clothes on him to flag a handcar. He walked up to the wheel and put his last dollar on the double O. He was drunk at pays 36 to 1. And damn me if he didn't hit pay dirt. It wasn't a very big joint, and the limit would have been $10 under ordinary circumstances, but Cousin Jack was drunk, and the dealer knew there wasn't no double O's coming up twice in a row, so he says, Leave her lay, Jack. He did. By dawn, here comes the old double O again. The house only had $1,800, and he took it all. In three days, I saw Cousin Jack, and all he had was the jimmies and no breakfast. The next time I saw him, he was bull cook in a Mormon camp, happy as hell, said that as soon as he made a stake, he was going out prospecting. A real miner never goes prospecting until he has to earn his grub stake the hard way. He'd no more take the money he made mining or gambling to do that than a priest would shave with holy water. I was a little different, but you see where it got me. I mined right up until a year or two ago, and I quit my last job because I was too cold, not too old. It was in Canada, and you could pitch a biscuit out the cookhouse door onto a glacier. Part 6 Every time I start to get wise, you want to point out to me where I am. In the poorhouse. I don't know that it proves much, though. I'll tell you the story of a model man. You know the kind. He never drank nor gambled. He went to church on Sunday, prayed when I would have sworn, followed the teaching of Jerusalem Slim to a T. Good man. It's just that way. I had a Catholic foreman tell me once, Sims, when I am up on top of the ground, the Pope can tell me what to do, but when we're down in it, your word's as good as his. Foreman's name was Doyle, an Irishman and a damn good mining man. Well, this model man worked a claim next to mine down in southern Oregon way back, say, 40 years ago. He worked it hard, prayed like hell, and when the diggings was about to break up, he sold out for a thousand dollars. The rest of us stayed on until the China man couldn't have panned out a grain of rice in a day. I figured that this model man would amount to something, but when I last heard of him, he was doing his mining on the side, like it should be done, and farming and raising a family. When I come in here to live, I was sitting down in the hall one day, and there was an old codger sitting next to me, and we got to talking. Said he was from southern Oregon. So I got to playing the names of people I knew at him, and he come back at me. We went on seeing who could stir up the most live ones. Finally, I played the model man at him. I says, have you ever heard what happened to Cliff Prine? He must be a deacon by now and rich. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was talking to the model man. He has a room here. If you want to go see him, he'll show you the other side of this ledge. Part 7. I guess that if a man has miner's blood in him, he can't never make it on top of the ground. 
He's like a mole. He can tell his way around by the kind of rock he's in, but the wind don't make sense. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. You will find the source materials for this reading, along with tons of other great Writers Project works, online in PDF form from the Library of Congress. That's at loc.gov collections slash federal hyphen writers hyphen project. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of our Primary Source Monday specials in which we examine the actual words of someone who made history in the Beaver State in the form of oral histories, amateur autobiographies, vintage newspaper articles, and so forth. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at finn at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday morning, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. <laughs>